the art of the video game, painting. Video games, like many other art forms, have an ability to transport the player into another place in time, into fictional worlds and unimaginable situations. As one of the newest forms of art, video games have undoubtedly borrowed or at least been influenced by older art forms. I like to think of mediums of art as sort of a Venn diagram, and in this article we'll be looking at the specific overlap between painting and video games. In 1960, writer and art critic Clement Greenberg wrote an essay titled Modernist Painting. In it, Greenberg put forth the notion of medium specificity, an idea that individual artistic mediums held certain specific characteristics that made them uniquely different from other artistic mediums. He claims that for art to become independent, for it to be acknowledged as its own specific medium, it must embrace those aspects which it doesn't share with any other art form, or those aspects which are specific to only it. To further elucidate his notion of medium specificity, Greenberg discussed painting and identifies his specific characteristics as flatness. Flatness, he argues, more than any other aspect is a unique characteristic that belongs solely to painting. While flatness may define painting, it is far more interesting to examine the ways in which painting has worked in order to counteract that one defining quality. While it's true that certain modernist painters, most notably Piet Mondrian, have embraced flatness, historically painting has sought to disown this definition at every turn. It is here in the rejection of the flat that painting and the video game most closely resemble one another. Video games, which present fully 3D worlds, have the inherent task of representing a three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional screen. Even VR, for all its innovations and promises, does not change the fact that display screens are essentially modern-day canvases. While this could be said of any art form which is displayed on a screen, painting and video games are unique in that they often ask or require a suspension of disbelief. They ask the viewer, if only for a moment, to forget that they are playing a game or staring at a painting and believe that they are inhabiting or gazing upon a world which is real. If you are wondering how this is different from film or television, the differences are subtle but there. Film and television are experienced in a relatively passive manner. You sit and watch. Video games require constant and active engagement. Painting, while seemingly passive as well, is a much more intimate experience. It is generally believed that you don't look at a painting the same way you look at a movie. When you're in a museum looking at a framed canvas on the wall, that's all you're doing. You're absorbed both physically and mentally in it. Art is often lauded or panned on its ability to make the beholder believe in its authenticity. Game reviews for The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, Bioshock, and Uncharted 4 A Thief's End all feature praise for the degree to which they give the player authenticity, believability, and immersion. While game critics are busy praising video games for their ability to depict realistic worlds, art critics have been doing the same for paintings for centuries. Michael Fried's book, Absorption and Theatricality, Painting and the Beholder in the Age of Diderot, discusses the observations of Denis Diderot, the father of modern art criticism while at the Salon of 1767. While commenting on Jean-Baptiste Le Prince's Pastoral Ruse, Diderot remarks, I actually find myself there. He goes on to describe the ways in which certain paintings draw him in and allow him to mentally inhabit the realm of the painting. What is a seemingly flat two-dimensional canvas suddenly becomes a portal into another world. Video games, by their very nature, pull players into their world. Gamers are forced to visually inhabit the world of the game to interact with it and participate in the actions of the fictional environment. A decidedly older medium than video games, 
Painting has long had to convince viewers to suspend their disbelief in the illusion presented to them. There's a certain technique in painting called trompe l'oeil, or trick of the eye, which refers to a style of realistic perspective painting, which makes flat surfaces look like realistic three-dimensional objects and spaces. This type of illusionistic painting has its roots in ancient Greece. In his book, Trompe l'oeil, the Eye Deceived, Martin Battersby tells the tale of the 5th century Greek painters Zeuxis and Parhasius. The story goes that the latter challenged the former to a competition to see who could paint the most realistic painting. Zeuxis painted grapes so realistic that birds attempted to peck at them, but was still forced to concede victory to Parhasius when he demanded that Parhasius remove the curtain from his painting only to discover that the painting was the curtain. Trompoli went on to gain prominence, most notably during the Italian Baroque period. In these cases, the technique was often used to make spaces seem larger than they actually were, or to compensate for architectural shortcomings. For example, the Church of Sant'Agasio in Rome does not have a dome, but a perspectival painting of the interior of a dome, so that when visitors stand in a particular spot along the center of the church and look up, they perceive the building to be domed. Game designers share these same challenges as Baroque artists. How do you represent three dimensions on a two-dimensional screen? Now, having digital screens capable of showing moving images makes this challenge much easier for game designers, but the technique in achieving three-dimensional representations are still the same. It all comes down to perspective. This is something that even the very first first-person game, Maze War, understood in 1974. To be able to properly and accurately depict a three-dimensional environment, Perspective and depth of field must work in similar nature to how they work in real life. Games like SimCity or StarCraft II present three-dimensional worlds, but do so not through one or two-point perspective, but through axonometric and isometric views. Views that are impossible to see in real life. For as long as painting has existed, it has sought to replicate real life. The story of Zeuxis and Parhasius serves as a parable towards the representational power of painting to depict lifelike three-dimensional images. In recent years, as graphical fidelity has begun to increase, video games have sought to capture that sense of representational awe that Parhasius's painting did. Certain moments through gaming's history have already proved that video games are fully capable of depicting realistic three-dimensional environments. Remember the first time you stepped out of the sewers in Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion and were greeted with a seemingly endless expanse of lush green countryside to explore? How about the first time you saw Half-Life 2 and were let loose in the incredibly detailed and realistic City 17? Or how about only a few months ago when Uncharted 4 A Thief's End released and gamers were treated to what I think is the most beautiful video game ever made? This kind of shows the article's age at this point now. Just as Denis Diderot found himself within the world of 18th century French painting, gamers everywhere find themselves inside the worlds in which games present. As gamers, when we play games with meticulously constructed worlds, it feels as if we have been there. Despite what has always been a medium which has been experienced two-dimensionally, video games have been able to reject that inherent limitation, just like painting, and provide deeply rich and fleshed out three-dimensional worlds. When's the last time you looked over this piece? Uh, It's been a while. It has been a while. I think uh, Alex originally hit me up um, 
God, a couple months ago now. Um, and I think I took a look at it again um, back then. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a, a couple months, but before that, um, a couple years, <laughs> to be honest. It's been a couple of years since you wrote it, right? You, what was this 2016? I want to think. Yeah. 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 Um, I wrote this before I started at Ubisoft. Um, and I started at Ubisoft November of 2016. So, um, sometime a few months before then. Do you think, um, cause you did, you know, you didn't just do this piece. You did sort of like three entries into this little column and then also some reviews i did um how much do you sort of contribute that kind of writing towards where you ended up uh yeah that's a good question i um so alongside writing for this uh writing for restaurant passions um i had my own blog um at the time uh where i was writing about the intersection of um art and video games and specifically architecture um and I was also freelancing a little bit for Kill Screen at the time when that still existed. Um, and so, I mean, projects like this and, and a lot of the stuff I did for uh, Irrational Passions um, and for my own blog definitely helped me, I guess, uh, sort of formalize the type of work that I wanted to be doing and I'm doing now. Um, you know, like they say, you know, if you want to, if you want to do something, just start doing it, and then hopefully you get good enough that someone will pay you to do it. Uh, and so, yeah, this is definitely, I think, something that um, definitely helps me get to where I am now and really kind of helped separate me, I think, from, um, you know, or, you know, maybe gave me a niche into uh, writing about games in a way that not many other people were. I feel like that's the unspoken sort of key to really, like, maybe not making it, making it, but more reliably making a mark when it comes to writing in this particular sort of business, it's like writing about any game is cool, but I find at least more and more that people are looking for like experts at things like being well-versed and playing all the games are cool. But if you like having just consistently one angle or one wheelhouse seems to be like way more desirable. Yeah. I mean, I don't even necessarily know if it's like be good at one, you know, like having one thing, but I think having the thing that makes you different from everything else, um, you know, any, anybody can play a game and write down their thoughts on it or, you know, but what, what can you add to it that not many other people can? Right. Like there's a lens here that is reliable, especially when you remove the confines of the column, right? This, the column was specifically about art and video games, but you even find some of that sort of crossover, that sort of other other medium crossover when you read like your review of Abzu or something like that. Like it's you don't set up your as Abzu review as sort of like a conversation about art as a medium, but clearly that's a pers- a perspective you carry no matter what you're sort of reflecting on. I guess you can see it there too. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with with games criticism, which um, you know to be to be honest and fair, I, it's not something I really do now um, because we, you know the type of writing I do now isn't really criticism. But I think when you're the the nice thing you know about my, my studies and, and uh, sort of what I did in graduate school um, is that it's it's very all encompassing. You know, I have a, I studied architecture, but much of what I studied is applicable to any art form. Um, so being able to talk about games, which you know, for my money, are my favorite art form. Um, 
is, isn't really that far of a jump from talking about architecture, from talking about painting, photography, sculpture, any of these things. Are you familiar with um, Heterotopias? I am. I've actually written for Heterotopias as well, actually. Have you? Yeah. Because I was going to say the cross-section of architecture and video games. That I know I know a place that does this exclusively that. Yeah. I wrote about um, right before um, I started in my current role now at Ubisoft. Um, I was taking some time off between roles there. Um, and I uh, I wrote a piece on Death of the Outsider for Heterotopias. Hmm. Do you find, like, that's such a, and, and Heterotopia's been around for a little bit now, and I still don't see writing like that anywhere, everywhere. And I don't know that, um, I don't know if that's because it seems like everyone, all the kind of perspectives from there are people who are bring who work like other places or do other things and, and bring that criticism in, or is it just like there's a, a specific sort of game critic that ends up there i don't know I, I i find all that writing fascinating even if i don't necessarily have the depth to find the references or even agree with the opinions but yeah no i think it's i think it's a fairly niche site um i i i love it i was a big fan of the work um gareth martin uh is i believe the the founder um or iuc um and he he himself is a game developer um he just, I think, recently defended his PhD uh, dissertation, um, and I think re- really takes a look uh, at video games through a lens that, that not many other people are capable of doing. Even, um, you know, when I when I wrote my piece about Dishonored: Death of the Outsider, um, and he was editing it, like he gave me some very very good criticism that um, honestly I felt like I hadn't received since I was in grad school. So he's definitely going at it with a much more academic lens. Uh, and then the, the funny thing too is um, when I was writing for Kill Screen, I was working primarily with uh, Chris Priestman there. Mm-hmm. And um, since Kill Screen sort of went under, uh, he's actually now working on Heterotopias as well. Mm, yeah. Okay. You formally went to school for architecture. Um, but how. Uh... When, when, when during your, I guess, education did you find that like art and exploring all these other mediums were also going to be such a, a I guess, a, a big interest of yours? Yeah, it's um, a good question. I so I originally started as an architecture design student. Um, I wanted to go to school and I wanted to become an architect. Uh, and I realized uh, after a year of it that I no longer wanted to be an architect. Uh, so. What I did actually is transfer into a different program. Um, I went from a master's of design in, in architecture um, to a master's of arts in architectures. And what that meant is it focused more on the history and theory side of things. Um, so I basically went from designing buildings to writing papers. And um, somewhere in my first year of that new program, um, I read a we read a piece. Um, the name of the piece is escaping me right now. Um, but it was by a man named uh, Lev Manovich. Um, and he was talking about computer games at the time um which in the he was writing about this you know in the early 90s um and talking about uh computer games as algorithms versus databases and um defining them under this fairly narrow definition that i think to to his credit was probably true at the time um but i'm sitting there reading this you know 20 years later thinking man games have actually come a very long way since this and i don't know if his analysis is true um, anymore, and so it kind of opened up this door for me to be able to 
think about and talk about games within an architectural space and realizing that uh, architecture and video games are share a lot in common and I think for my money are the two most interactive forms of art um, in the way that they are spatially navigated in the way that they're visually represented in the way that they ask and require participation from the user and agency from the user uh, and so that's kind of how the floodgates opened for me um, yeah I think the piece you're talking about because I might also have read this database as a symbolic form I think might be it yes um, yes i think you're you're 100 like right 90s, actually. i think it is from um yeah i want to say 97 no i recognize like it's and like you said that was probably definitely true then and and i think there's still tenants that are true now i mean it's been years since 100 absolutely the, the general just you nailed um has is there a significant different like a significant change you think maybe Manovich hasn't had an opportunity to write about or maybe like is significantly what one thing in that sort of piece that he that we sort of transcended in his opinion like clearly we have way more capability like we're not playing with small numbers so anymore. I mean like, yeah I mean so to, to his credit I think a lot of the analysis still holds up today and it is true for a lot of video games um so when I actually when I actually wrote my thesis, um, I I realized I couldn't. You can't make such broad, overarching statements about all games. Just like you can't say the same thing about all paintings or all buildings or anything like that. Um, so I think it's important to classify specific types of games. So like when I, I wrote my thesis, I wrote it specifically on three dimensional games, um, just because you know. When you're analyzing space through an architectural lens, you kind of need three dimensions. Um, you, it's it's a bit more difficult to talk about, you know, Super Mario Brothers um, compared to something like an Assassin's Creed game. Um, and so, going back to your question, the the thing with Manovich that I don't think applied then that does in a certain way apply now uh, is the level to which games function outside of their own creator's uh, knowledge base. And so if you're making the the, the 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 relationship between algorithm and database, algorithm is something rote. It is something well, it is something that is known. It is something that is defined. Um, whereas database is something that can be, is open, it is mined for information. Um, and so I, what originally actually sparked all this for me was thinking about No Man's Sky. Um, which hadn't even released at the time yet, um, but something that was so big that the entire thing could never be knowable, um, not even to the people who made the game themselves. Um, and so to me, that, that level of you know, procedural generation now has sort of almost come and gone um, in terms of uh, you know, innovative gameplay mechanics. Um, and almost every game uses it to a certain extent now, but the fact that this was a game that was almost entirely made through procedural generation um, and was fed by algorithms, but in and of itself had become a database, had become a thing that that could be learned from, that could be discovered. It's interesting um, that something that could be both considered, like considered some sort of like a, a movement in a in an expansive sort of unknown place, like 
algorithm procedurally generated based games could also become something that is such a such a popular almost necessary tool for a game designer who can't afford you know big art teams and big level designers like the when you want to skip a lot of steps in level design you use uh, procedural generation and you don't necessarily possess the 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 infinite unknown like in dead cells as you might in no man's sky but it's interesting to see the same very base concept grow into this thing that can be both like this sort of brain-breaking thought experiment and like something you see every day no you're right it's 100 true and it's something honestly that you see in in games just as much um as you do in in architecture and in games actually now there's i think a bit of a shift towards the ai working outside of the game so how ai can automate a lot of the things that developers don't really want to do um it's actually something that we talk a lot about at ub um how you know for example when we do motion capture um, with actors and suits and everything, a lot of that data comes back and it's really rough. Um, and it, you know, traditionally it needed um, it needed designers to come in and tweak it over weeks of time, just because it took so long to actually get it refined down to what what it should look like. Um, and now AI can do the whole thing in hours as mm. opposed to weeks. And so what what that allows is for designers to actually work on the things that they'd rather work on rather than the monotonous, repetitive stuff. Um, and it allows them to actually do things that AI can't do, like be creative um, and add that human authorship to things. Um, and it's the exact same thing for architecture. Um, one of the things I wrote for Kill Screen was uh, interviewing a former classmate of mine who's who's now a practicing architect um, about that very thing, about how procedural generation can automate a lot of the things that architects don't really like to do. Procedural generation in like the design process not in necessarily the fabrication but yeah but so i mean so when you're talking about architectural design uh i think a lot of people tend to glamorize it and think it's oh it's all these drawings and model making and, and you know creative energy uh the creative part of any project is really only about 10 percent the other 90% is figuring out logistics and really boring shit. Like, okay, how does the wall meet the ceiling? How does the floor meet the wall? How does the window fit into this area? How do, you know, what does the door jam look like and everything like that? And so there's a lot that's not fun to do. It's not all big concepts and, and giant, you know, abstract shapes. Uh, there's a lot more pragmatism that has to go into real world architecture. Um, but AI can actually help solve a lot of those problems. I hate that. I kind of wanted it to just be like, dudes with glasses that are clear sitting in front of like light tables and thinking very big and heavy on their easels about like really cool shit uh that's what and i <laughs> you're not alone in that thought that is what everyone thinks about architecture uh that's what i once thought about architecture and then i learned the truth uh and i no longer want to be an architect <laughs> it's, it's depressing when you put it that way a little um, bit a little bit do video games have like periods like art does? Like, do we have a a video game cubist period, like a like a early twentieth century like avant garde video game? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I think we definitely do. Um, it's funny when you look back at at certain movements um, or certain periods in art. Uh, it, you can't really define them, or it's difficult to define them until you're out of them. I think um, you know. In art, the I think the biggest epoch is modernism, um, which 
really starts in you know the 1860s with the Industrial Revolution um, and the world sort of being ushered into a modern age and modernism is it's it's an ironic term because then we eventually get out of modernism we get into postmodernism and even then we're out of postmodernism and the only you know we're in an age right now in in all art forms you know across every every form that is now just referred to as contemporary because contemporary is the word you always use for the style of right. today um, and then retroactively it can kind of be named um, and so i think if you look at games obviously they're in their relative infancy compared to most other forms of art but i certainly think that there are phases um i'm sure someone much smarter than me and who's thought much more hard uh, about this has has documented them but um i think the introduction of three dimensions um is a huge 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 radical shift um into how we navigate that space and how video games can be understood. Um, so, you know, your Mario 64s, your Crash Bandicoots, um, you know, even Ocarina of Time. Um, once you get into that era, um, obviously Doom, Wolfenstein are working three-dimensional space as well. Um, I think that, to me, is modernism in games. Um, that That is the giant epoch uh, the giant shift um, that that sets up the foundation for everything that mm-hmm. has come since. Because I know we we think of games, we can we can probably subdivide games more easily with like the genres that are popular or the sort of mechanics that find themselves proliferating and ubiquitous eventually. Um, and I don't know that it's even effective to think of games like sort of less interactive art in the same way because it's harder what what is you know what is the value of labeling like an, an some sort of art deco um adjacent visually for a game when you're when you're only taking a piece of what makes that game a game and what can make it yeah you're only talking about it you know representationally in that sense like if you're talking about oh bioshock is an art deco game prey is an art deco game yeah representationally sure um but there's so much more than that. There's there's the whole participatory nature, which is why I think when you're talking about different styles of game, you have to talk about it more holistically than any one aspect. So when I say 3D games, that's that signals a radical shift into how these games are being played. So not only are they looking different, not only are they being represented differently, but that participatory aspect has fundamentally changed. Do you think... Not to beat a dead conversation even further to death, but part of, I think, the issue with, like, a games as art conversation is it fails to accept games as not, like, the art forms it's trying to be sort of compared to. And the the necessity to be compared to those things is kind of what hinders it. Is, is, Is there, like, a... Do you identify or find that there is, like, major like a major flaw that even stops the argument from being relevant sorry is there a major flaw that stops which are in the in the very sort of nature of the art of the games is art argument that you find that makes that argument hard to even make like 
I I find that it's difficult to make to have that conversation because the context of the conversation uh, sort of requires us to acknowledge games like we would other forms of art when games are not like other yeah, forms I, of art. There's yes. So I, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I get what you're saying now. Um, so yeah, it's a struggle. All art forms actually, I think, have to suffer through. Uh, they have growing pains, and anytime a new form of art is introduced, it really has to adopt a theoretical substructure of what came before it. Um, I've mentioned this in, in other things that I've done and, and written, but what paint or uh, excuse me, photography is looked at really as the first technological art form um, that's introduced really alongside modernism. And when it's first introduced, it is not widely accepted as an art form. Um, it is not just adopted, you know, and, and taken in wholeheartedly. Uh, it's kind of looked at as, well, any idiot can point a camera and push a button, you know, where's the authorship in this? Where's the, where's the skill? Where's the technique? Um, and it's only after decades of growth that people learn to understand it and appreciate it outside of something like painting, which, you know, it shares a lot with. Um, so when you're talking about video games, there is a bit of a need to adopt a theoretical substructure of other forms of art. Um, you know, and that's, that's a lot of, you know, what this art of the video game thing was about of, okay, what does it share with painting? What does it share with photography? What does it obviously share with architecture? Um, and I don't think that necessarily does a disservice to the discussion of how games fit, um, and define themselves as art, but I do think it is important to essentially, or excuse me, eventually leave behind that substructure that you've built with other games and start talking about games specifically um, as their as the thing that they do uniquely for themselves um, which isn't true of all games definitely not but um, because there's there's very few things that you can say one thing does that no other art forms do but how can you start talking about games in a way that doesn't have to rely on on architecture on you know painting on photography or anything like that um is there sort of a lack of that sort of, I don't know, insular reference that you find in criti like criticism of other art? Like, I find reading, like, film criticism even um, to be one that's usually now pretty rich in self-reference and pretty... It, it's developed its own sort of film crit language. Um, have have Do games have a game crit language? I think they do. I think they absolutely do. And I think a lot of the, the issue is that a lot of academics, um, a lot of people writing about games on an academic scholarly level are have originally had to write about those in spaces that weren't for video games. Or, you know, I wrote about video games in an architecture school. I had to explain everything. The things that, you know, the, the terms and the verbs that you and I take for granted um, had to be thoroughly explained. I couldn't just say first person video game. No one knew what that meant. Um, and so I think games do have sort of a, a mode of analysis and a way of talking about them that people who are obsessed with this art form or people who, or who are, you know, fans of this art form understand, um, just like any, any, you know, just like architecture does. Um, and it's, it's something that we sort of take for granted and you almost can't see when you're in it, but I like actually a lot what you said about film, um, about criticism becoming self-referential and um, 
using other games to to talk about games. Um, I think that's that is a step into um, not having to rely on other forms of art. Because I think, you know, I think we're finding that we have those conversations maybe um, in, in a more social setting, like even like on Twitter, I feel like we have more of that self-referential conversation about good or bad or types of games than we do when we sit down and write formal criticism. Because I think a lot of our criticism is still sort of holding tight to the maybe the product review uh, like bedrock of criticism a, a lot of us are, a lot of a lot of even in big places are moving towards like the sort of travel brochure like new crit situation but like i feel we are more willing to call things like to to mention a kojima like a kojima game or is this very kojima like and then we have this this entire thought process around it that we we already have like this understanding of this context is sort of this this tangible feeling of what that could mean even if we don't have the words for it um i feel like i read you know ebert i've ever read ebert criticism that feels that way you know where he won't necessarily describe what makes uh a steve mcqueen type movie but if he mentions this uh, this is very steve mcqueen like i think i know what he's talking about yeah 100 percent, and i think um I think there's a ability in criticism to, I think it speaks to the critic to be able to weave in and out of references um, to the service of the criticism. So like, what I mean is that when a comparison, you know, to something as seminal as, as Bioshock, for example, um, or Doom or Wolfenstein or anything is apt, then a hundred percent go ahead and make that. But if you can, if you can describe your thought through through something else, and that that includes another medium, that includes another pop culture reference, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, one of my favorite critics of all time um, was a man named Herbert Mouchamp, and he uh, he wrote this um, he wrote a, a, a piece for the New York Times called "The Miracle in Bilbao" um, about the Bilbao Museum, um, or excuse me, about the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. Um, and it's one of my favorite pieces of writing of all time. And he's talking about a building, but he's talking about Disney World. He's talking about Marilyn Monroe. He's talking about Superman in it. Um, it's, it's a fascinating piece that is playful. And I think that criticism sometimes, you know, especially video game criticism, can sometimes get a little bit too mm-hmm. self-serious. Um, and it's having that ability to weave in and out of of comparisons that that suit like i said the 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 critique the or the criticism is really important to have in the piece we're referencing specifically um that you wrote for our rational passions the art of video game um painting you reference you make a reference i think a lot of people are, are i guess you make a relationship that a lot of people do um the witcher just in, and in generally painting um especially uh what i think the dlc it what am i thinking of blood and wine oh uh like a b- italian baroque painting basically uh yeah that was actually hearts of stone, of stone yeah. yeah 
Um, do you find so we we I think video games specifically like to use the word immersion and like to paint the picture of being fully sort of enraptured in a believable space all the time. Um, and where a video game is way better suited to actually emerge, like pull pull a player into itself and sort of build and create this air of believability about the world it's living in. Um, there are a lot, there might still be, I'm not sure, there might still be plenty more examples of paintings that do it better. I don't know. Would you would you agree with that? Like, do do you think video games now are like have demonstrated time and time again, or or consistently enough that they are and deserve to be like the immersive sort of art form on the planet? I think we always talk about it like as potential, but have we do we have enough examples now where we can say definitively like yes, this is. So. Uh... I think you, you bring up a good point. So when it when it comes to painting, painting has what we call representational immersion. Um, that you're looking at something, and as you look at it, you whether it's it's through sheer realism or whether it's just through um, your ability to to get lost in it, it is um, you lose yourself in the representation that is being displayed on the canvas or on whatever you're looking at, um, which is something that games share, right? That you're looking at a screen and you think, you know, oh my God, Uncharted 4 looks so good. Um, you know, I feel like I'm there. What what video games have that painting doesn't um, is that participatory immersion. So, you know, you can be immersed in Tetris, right? You're never going to look at Tetris and think it's real, but you could be immersed in that that gameplay loop that, that you have or, you know, that, that feeling that your agency is making an impact and you get so caught up with it that, you know, nothing else exists. Um, there's also, on the flip side, there's something that's that often gets referred to as the immersion fallacy, that immersion in games isn't as real as we'd all like to think it is. That at the end of the day, you realize, oh no, I'm, I'm staring at a TV, I'm holding a controller, I know this isn't real, I can turn my head slightly to the right and stare at my couch or stare out the window. Um, and so there is a level that games are almost hamstrung by their apparatus, um, by the fact that they're being played on a, on a television, which is why something like you know the intrigue of AR and VR is so interesting from, from this point of view, in that you are not only representationally immersed, participatorily immersed, but literally immersed in the hardware this time, where it becomes all around you. Um, and so I think we're maybe still a ways away from video games becoming the, I forget exactly how you phrase it, but like the principal um, immersive form of art. Um, I think something like the fact that architecture, like it, it does, it, you, it, it, the building, the, the, you know, the exhibition, whatever you're in, physically immerses you. Um, I think VR is a step towards that, though. Would you consider, like, if we take like a Star Trek example of like a holodeck as the air form of VR and AR combined. This is a real virtual space you can actually interact with with, with some sort of uh, facsimile of tangible things. Is that, e- is that even still art at that point? Like this is a game or, or a program designed to simulate something. 
it's has an probably a written objective with some rules that are not always maybe like rules of physical law and nature that you have to sort of apply or, or live by and play by and there's probably some sort of conflict you have to resolve with an end goal so it's a game but now it's immersed it, it's it's immersive but is it if it's just trying to represents a life as real as possible is that even still a art at that point or is it just life at that point i'm not so, so I, I guess I'm, I'm curious why you question uh, its artistic I, value. I think at that about point. it because, and I've thought about this for a while because I think we, we always assume, or or maybe if it's unspoken, the the conversation around VR always ends or implies to end in a place where we don't need to wear the headsets anymore. We just get to walk into a world, and that's it, and that's that's the thing. There, if something can get so close to living something like a close, something like a real ish life participating in real ish world with real ish rules. Is it more art than a action, than actual real life? Hmm. I see what you're saying. Like where, where do we stop uh, becoming a, 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 a creative sort of effort endeavor? Or, or maybe not even always creative because I'm not sure everything that's creative has to like strictly creative that has to be is is an art right like like you said architecture isn't necessarily completely creative but it can be art. Um, when when we've reached this this utopia in the year 2020 whatever on our spaceships, are we creating art anymore? Yeah, uh, I, I get yeah that's a good question. So. My, my thoughts on this are art is ultimately defined by authorship um, in my eyes. And so, you know, the whole what is art question is, you know, comes up a ton, obviously. Um, I worked at SF MoMA for two and a half years. Um, I had to explain why a urinal was a work <laughs> of art to literally thousands of people. Um, and when in this, in this, metaphor of this this hollow deck and and replication and um, mimesis of reality being so real it's almost indistinguishable from life uh i would say it is art because it because it is authored um theoretically as you know assuming in this um in in this scenario here that there is an author or authors behind this recreation on the hollow deck um that feels so much like reality um is that they're they're doing this the, these metaphorical authors um, to intentionally elicit something from the player or the viewer, the, the person experiencing this. Um, there is a message that they are trying to convey, whether it's about, you know, the, you know, the, the fleeting nature of life or, you know, whatever it is um, when they're, they're trying to replicate reality. But, as long as this isn't something that is entirely computer generated, that is entirely, you know, that has zero human contact, human craftsmanship, um, I would say that that art is always still a possibility. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything a human makes is art. Um, it's it's really about the intentionality behind the authorship. Right. I buy that. It was out of nowhere question, but I buy that answer. No, I mean that's I mean. 
to me, that's the, like, you know, everyone says, you know, you, you stare at a plain white canvas and you're like, okay, why is this art? Um, the art is not the thing itself. It is not the object. It is not the plain white canvas hanging up. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Robert Rauschenberg famously um, had has a, a plain white canvas. Um, and when that canvas is off in storage and not being seen by anyone, not being talked by anyone, it is not art. It is only art when it is hung up on the wall and it is inspiring a conversation because that's what Rauschenberg wanted to do. He wanted to see at which point could I strip everything away from a painting that we typically associate with a painting? How much of it can I strip away and how, at what point will it cease to be a painting? And so when you see a plain white canvas, which he actually does paint, it's not, he doesn't leave it blank. He's, he's searching for this investigation. He wants to see if something is true so that when you and I go to a museum and look that canvas up on a wall, we have that conversation. And that conversation is the author's intention. Well, I had another question, but that's actually a really good place to end it. Dude, put a, right. put a nice little pin in it. <laughs> Well, you said, awesome. thank you for joining me. Um, it's uh, on our so list me. of the best things written on the Rational Passions because it clearly is um, well-read, well-intentioned, well-argumented. Happy to argue for its virtues. I'm glad you were here to defend it. No, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this was an absolute pleasure to get to talk about it. <laughs>